0: Well, good morning. Welcome to Directional Bible Ministries, a teaching ministry that is called to encourage, disciple, and challenge the people of God. Today is September the 11th, and uh, we are continuing to work our way through the book of Acts. We are in chapter 18. May or may not finish the chapter today. Um, 28 chapters in the book, so we're moving along pretty good here. So let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Acts chapter number 18. Um, And we stopped off in verse 17, I believe. So let's uh, look over there real quick. Here we go. Of course, here we have uh, Paul. He's in Corinth. He had left Athens where he disputed with the philosophers of the day. He meets Aquila and Priscilla for the first time. Um, they were both uh, tent makers. Silas and Timotheus uh, caught up with him. And um he, of course, goes in the synagogue, begins to reason with them, ends up leaving the synagogue, telling them their bloods or their blood be upon their own heads. But there were two who did believe Justice and Crispus, and many of the Corinthians here and believed and were baptized. And then spake the Lord to Paul in the night, and of course he gave him a, um, a pep talk, and uh, it must have worked because he ended up staying there for about a year and a half. And then of course, Galileo was the deputy, and the Jews had had enough of Paul, and they made insurrection, and they brought him before the judgment seat and accused him of teaching things that was contrary to the law. Uh, And of course, Paul was getting ready to defend himself when Galileo said, you know what, if it was a matter of wrong or wickedness or lewdness, I would bear with you. But if it's just a question of words and names of your law, you take care of it. I'm not going to get involved in this. So he drove him from the judgment seat and then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Galileo cared cared for none of those things, so he didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, and then in verse number eighteen, and Paul, after he was after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren and sailed thence to Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Synkria, for he had a vow. Apparently, Paul stayed in Corinth in spite of the uprising a little longer. Um, and then he decides to head back toward Antioch. Um, this journey, as we're going to see, will take him through Syria, synchrea, Ephesus, Caesarea. He's going to do a brief tour into Jerusalem and then to Antioch, and that'll conclude his second missionary journey. But notice it does say that Paul had a vow, and this has been the subject of much speculation, something I've been trying to dig into uh, the past couple days. Whatever vow it was involved cutting his hair, Uh, see it says here, and having shorn his head before he had a vow, Um, the only vow in scripture that requires anything to do with cutting of the hair is the Nazarite vow which was simply a time of dedication uh, to the Lord. And we see that vow in Numbers, chapter number 6. Whether a man or a woman will separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite to separate themselves to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar or wine or vinegar or strong drink. Neither shall he drink any liquor or grapes, nor even eat moist grapes or dried all the days of his separation he will eat nothing that is made of the vine tree from the kernels, even to the husk. In all the days of the vow of his separation there shall be no razor come upon his head. Until the days be fulfilled in which he separateth himself unto the Lord, he shall be holy and shall let the locks of his head grow. In all the days he separates himself to the Lord, he shall come at no dead body, He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother or for his brother or for his sister if they were to die, because the consecration of the Lord is upon his head. In all the days of his separation, he is holy unto the Lord. And if any man dies suddenly by him, and he hath defiled his head of his consecration, then he will shave his head in the day of his cleansing on the seventh day, he will shave it. And on the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves, two young pigeons, to the priest, to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the priest will offer one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering, and make an atonement for him, for that he sinned by the dead, and shall hallow his head that same day. And of course, if you, you keep reading on there, that's if he accidentally has to break his vow because he comes near something dead. Uh, But it just keeps going. He will consecrate the days of his separation. In other words, there was no prescribed time limit. Uh, But during this whole time, he was to do all these things. This is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of the separation are fulfilled. So I guess it would be up to the one who made the vow to determine when the days of his separation are fulfilled. He shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and shall offer his offering unto the Lord. So that's the only vow that I see in in the Bible that involves um, shaving of the hair. Um, And, of course, there's five things that we see in regards to this vow. It was voluntary. Uh, No one was forced to do it. It could be done either by men or women. It wasn't just a male thing. Um, It had a specific time frame, It had specific requirements and restrictions. And at its conclusion, a sacrifice was to be offered. So, this is pure speculation on our part, because we really don't know what Paul is doing here. But some will preach it dogmatically. I'm not willing to do that. Um, But one might speculate that this is exactly what he was doing in verse 21. When we get down to verse number 21, we're going to see that he does swing through Jerusalem um, on his way to Antioch. Um, and that may very well have been him completing the vow. So again, we don't know why he made the vow, uh, if indeed that was the Nazarite vow. Uh, but it kind of looks like it, it might have been what he was doing, a time of just setting himself apart um you know, and you know, maybe as a result of the conversation that he had with the Lord about being strong, I, I'm. No one's going to come to hurt you. Um, maybe it was it was in response to a vow to the Lord, but we just don't know. There's not enough scripture there to tell us that. And then in verse number twenty-two, and when he had landed in Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch. So. Um, Whatever he did do in Jerusalem was, was pretty short. Um, so, uh, did, I, did I read that? No, verse number 19. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered in the synagogue. So, we finished verse number 18. He came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself entered in the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So, obviously, he wasn't through with the Jews. He had kind of stormed out of the, the synagogue in Corinth, and said, your blood be upon your own heads, but he wasn't. it wasn't a pattern that he was to follow. He was just tired of the Corinthians. So when he comes to Ephesus, he does go into the synagogue, and he reasons again with the Jews. Um, and when they desired him to tarry longer with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. So again, speculation that, He had to fulfill the Nazarite vow. He had to make the proper sacrifices for um, closing that vow of a Nazarite, if indeed that be the case. But I will return again to you, if God will, and he sailed from Ephesus. So still on his way to Antioch, he stops briefly in Ephesus. He heads to the synagogue. Um, And again, uh, he's reasoning with the Jews, Uh, the Jews no doubt. He was ministering uh, in regards to the ministry of Christ, uh, that he must need suffer. He was explaining to them all of that as he has since the beginning. Uh, they obviously wanted to hear more. So whatever you know, the message he was preaching, they were very much interested in it, and they wanted to hear more. Uh, the KJV is interesting. It says he wanted to get to Jerusalem while the others leave that phrase out. Um, this little phrase... I must by all means keep the feast that cometh in Jerusalem. That phrase is only found in the King James translation, um, which, you know, I, I personally, if you follow me, I, 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 am, I would say that I am a KJV preferred. I really do believe that the KJV is the most accurate, translation in the English language, and is based upon its underlying text. Uh, I believe that the received text, the majority text, is the most accurate text. Uh, and unfortunately, only the King James um, comes exclusively off those texts. Um, so, so it's really a, an argument, not so much of the translation as it is the underlying text course, the new King James does the same thing, but it brings in notes and compares and contrasts with, uh, with the other texts. Um, but um, anyway, I, I personally prefer, I read what the King James says first, and, um, and then I compare and contrast what the others, the others say. Just, just not a fan of the modern day translations at all. I, I compare it to, you know, being a teacher in a classroom You know, if I'm teaching an American history class and everybody's required to go buy the exact same edition of the exact same textbook so that we're looking at the exact same words. um, To me, that's smart. (laughs) Um, You know, even in college, you know, we tell the kids, you know, when they pick up their syllabi, it says you're going to go get the fifth revised version of this book. You know, but yet we come into the church house, we come into the uh, uh, Sunday school class, and everybody's reading out of 40 different translations. Uh, To me, that's just confusion. Um, And, you know, I just, I don't think the world needs another translation. Uh, It's a money-making scheme as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, the, the King James was, has been around what, 400 years (laughs) you know, and it's done fine. Uh, it doesn't matter what translation of the Bible you have if you never read it. Uh, and most do not. I, I just think it creates a lot of confusion. So, you know, I just parked years ago on just the King James in my study and in my teaching. Um, so I would say I am King James preferred based upon... The underlying texts. And I'm not going to get a fight with somebody over, you know, a King James only type person. I'm not going to do that. Their translations, you know, the translations are not uh, inspired. The original aut- autographs were inspired. The, you know, but uh, and we don't have those. Uh, but I do believe the KJV is the most accurate, and that's the one I recommend to use. And New King James, uh, I used that for years too. Now notice in verse number 22, and when he had landed in Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch. So whatever he did in Jerusalem, it was short. Um, Gone up is interesting. Notice it says that when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch. What does it mean, and gone up and saluted the church? Obviously, he's referring to Jerusalem. Gone up is a reference to Jerusalem, because it is the only place referred to as up in the New Testament. No matter where you were coming from, you were going up uh, to Jerusalem. Um, and as I stated earlier, he was, pro- might have been fulfilling the Nazarite vow. Upon his return to Antioch, his second missionary journey is complete. And in verse 23, and after he had spent some time there, He departed and went over all the country of Galatia, Phrygia, in order strengthening all of the disciples. So just as quickly as the second journey ended, the third journey began. And we don't know when it says when he had uh, spent some time there. We don't know how long he stayed there. Um, Some people say it was about a year. Uh, But again, as soon as the the second journey ended... He begins the third. Um, And notice that his goal, as his goal earlier, was to strengthen the disciples. Um, He wanted to go back. He wanted to visit with them. He wanted to encourage them. He wanted to strengthen them. You remember when he started his second, it says that, uh, Paul and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching the word of the Lord, many also. And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. So, both the, you remember the first missionary journey, he goes up in Asia, he visits all those churches, he returns to Antioch, he gives a report. Acts 15, he says, We need to go back and see how they're doing. That begins the missionary journey. Now he's back in Antioch again, and he's already turning back around on his third missionary journey um, to see uh, how the disciples are doing. Um, and I and I think that's true. I think God has called us all to be disciple-makers. Um, I've said this before. I believe that there should be three people in your life at all times, a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. Uh, a Paul is someone... That I'll be honest with you, as you get older, is harder to get. Uh, Paul should be a mentor. Uh, Paul should be someone that holds you accountable, someone that uh, you look up to, someone that uh, encourages you, will rebuke you, correct you, someone you look to for leadership. Uh, you should not only have a Paul in your life, um, I have found most of my Pauls now are virtual. <laughs> Because I just don't I don't live anywhere near a Paul um, so I spend a lot of time studying online. but you need to have someone that you're studying with, someone that's that you're learning from because trust me, you have not arrived. I have not arrived um, someone that'll help you question assumptions in your life. Uh, so you not only need a Paul but you need to be a Paul to somebody you need to be a Paul. You need to be actively mentoring and discipling young men around you being a Paul. Uh, And then, of course, that's your Timothy. You know, you need to be pouring into a Timothy. Um, And you also, you know, you not only need to be pouring into a Timothy, you need to be a Timothy to a Paul, you know. And, And then also a Barnabas. Barnabas is your friends. You know, Barnabas is your peers. Barnabas are your brothers in Christ that are there to encourage you, to keep you going. To So we all need those men in our life. Paul's, Barnabas's, and Timothy's. I think we should strive to have those people at all times around us. And there's nothing wrong with sitting down and saying, okay, who's my Timothy? Who's my Paul? Who am I being a Paul to? Uh, who's my Timothy? Who's who's my barn? I think I think you need to to try to actively have those people in your life. It may not always be all the time, but depending on where you are, you know. But you do. When I say where you are, it's not necessarily physically, but spiritually. Uh, you need to have those people in your life. I think it'll strengthen you. Um, you know, I ha I have no problems getting Timothy's. You know, living in a community with, with you know, like eight colleges, uh, one of which is Christian. Uh, I've got a lot of Timothys running around. I, I can name probably six of them right now. So, uh, but getting a Paul and even getting a Barnabas in your life can be tough. My Barnabases are online. Uh, you guys, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, <clears throat> so, notice the verse number 24, is that right? 24. And certain of the Jews, uh, and a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man, and mining in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. So now we're introduced to Apollos from Alexandria. Again, remember that Luke is writing this account. Um, and notice that he says Paul, Apollos was an eloquent man, and mining in the scriptures. Now the word eloquent means that he was a fluent orator. In other words, he was very good at speaking. So not only was he knowledgeable, because it says he was mighty in the scriptures, but he had the ability to share that knowledge in an understandable way. And believe me, that is a gift that not all men possess. <laughs> Some of the most intelligent men <clears throat> I've ever met are just horrible at uh, being able to share that Um, that knowledge with other people. When I pastor it, I'd have men come in that had written numerous books. But when you put them in a pulpit in front of a group of people, um, they're just a whole lot better with the pen (laughs) than they are with the tongue. Um, But um, the bottom line is we should desire to to be like that. The bottom line is you got to understand it to explain it. That requires study uh, that most Christians are simply not willing to do. Most Christians are just lazy; they don't study. You know, you put up a stupid meme, you know, and everybody loves it and everybody shares it. But you put up a Bible study, and nobody's got the stomach for it. Um, you know, they would rather be entertained um, than than study the Word of God, and that's sad because it's reflecting in our community as it burns down around us right now. Um, so, you know, when I went to Bible college, we had to actually take a pulpiteering class. Um, and in that class, they would give us a portion of scripture. They would take us into a, a booth, which was at our little Bible college, and they would record us. They would film us and they would give us like 15 minutes. And then they would show it and critique it. Uh, And they would say things like, you know, your voice inflection, you're, you're, you're too soft, you're, you're clicking that pin, you keep touching your tie, (laughs) you know, you're leaning on the podium, you know, Uh, they would actually they understood the importance of the man being able to stand behind the podium, and and wax eloquent, and be able to express and, you know, what what he was trying to say. Um, I think we should aspire to this. We should aspire to be Apollos, who are men who are not only mighty in the scripture, but men who have the ability to share that in an understandable way with others. And then notice in 25 this man was instructed in the way of the Lord. Um, and being fervent in spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, but he only knew the baptism of John. Uh, So he had been instructed well in the way of the Lord. He was fervent, he was diligent, but he only knew the baptism of John. This means that he did not know the grace gospel that had been given to Paul. He still didn't know about that. He only knew the baptism of John. The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. So it would seem that he was a kingdom believer. Because that's all he had heard. That's all that he knew. He was not fully aware of the mystery that had been given to Paul. Um, And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard him, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. So after Aquila and Priscilla heard him speak in the synagogue, they pulled him aside, they brought him up to speed in regards to what God had been doing through Paul's life and ministry. No doubt they probably recounted the the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter number 15, uh, but they wanted him to understand the way of God more perfectly, or more exactly. So, that's what Aquila and Priscilla did, um, and... Um, And when he was disposed to pass unto Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. This is speaking of Apollos, who when he was come helped them much, which had believed through grace. So now Apollos, being much more fully informed in regards to to what we call Pauline theology. Pauline theology is found from Romans to Philemon. Um... In his Pauline epistles, um, so now that he's more fully informed in regards to Pauline theology, he was able to share that with the brethren in Achaia. Uh, Paul, Apollos, was now more prepared to rightly divide law and grace, kingdom from grace, kingdom gospel from grace gospel. Um, and I personally have found in my ministry that that ability changes everything that changes everything when you are able to open the scriptures and say who's the speaker who's the audience it's matthew it's it's the gospels it's hebrews through revelation so you know those books are dealing with the kingdom because the ones who wrote this book those books were the apostles So they're going to be talking about the things of the kingdom. And when we rightly divide the word of truth like that, it gets rid of the the contradictions. There is no contradiction between what Paul said and what James said. None at all. Because their audiences are completely different. James is speaking to Jews about the kingdom. Paul is speaking about the grace gospel. You know, once, once you begin to understand that, it, it just becomes so clear. It's like, I mean, you can breathe. It, it changes everything. Trust me, it changes everything. And Apollos was now able to do that. We will find later that Apollos was effective at it because he had quite a following. In 1 Corinthians, a Pauline epistle now I say unto you that every one of you saith, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. So obviously, Apollos began teaching, and he had a following. Um, and, um, you know, we do the same thing today. You know, I can listen to somebody, and I can kind of tell who their mentor was. Um, I, uh, you know, I have a, a lot of history with Calvary Chapel um, which I love and respect. Some of my best friends are Calvary guys, um, but I can hear Chuck Smith <laughs> in in them. I I can hear him. I can hear his expressions. I can hear his uh, how he compares things. I I can hear that, um, and I know guys that you know are of. You know, someone else, you know, and and I can hear that person in them. I I think we just kind of inherit that from our Paul, you know, whoever our Paul was. And, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not to create division. And, of course, that's what's going on here in First Corinthians. Then notice verse number 28. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly showing uh, by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So again, we are in a time of overlap that makes it practically impossible to see hard lines between the one and the other in regards to the Gospels. The hardest thing I have in the book of Acts is trying to determine where is there a stop, is is there a finish and a start, and there's no hard lines there. So when I I offer legitimate confusion as to, okay, Paul's talking to Jews here. Is he, is he talking about the kingdom? Is he talking about grace? Is he preaching both? And When he's with Jews, is he preaching kingdom? When he's with Gentiles or non-believing Jews, is he preaching grace? I don't know. And everybody I ask, I get a different answer. So, you know, I mean, again, that's right division. <laughs> that's trying to rightly divide the word of truth. You're not separating truth from error. You're separating truth from truth. Uh, it's all true, you know, so to get that transition um, is, um, is tough, you know, uh, because Acts is a time of overlap. Um, today, this is not the case. Um, there is no overlap today. You know, we are in grace. Uh, the preaching of the kingdom has ended. The kingdom has been Postponed. We should all be preaching the gospel of grace, which is simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We are not to be bringing the kingdom gospel to the table. Repentance and baptism. But yet so many people do that today. Um, I, I made this little note here. The point of the kingdom gospel was to show that Christ was the Messiah. The point of the grace gospel Is to show that Christ is the Savior. Um, There's a difference between the two because the audiences are different. Why was it so important for Apollos to understand that difference? Because one was for national salvation, and the other is for individual salvation. The Kingdom Gospel wasn't about an individual salvation, the entire nation had to repent. And be baptized. The grace gospel is an individual salvation. One was going away. And the other was just coming in. Um, one would no longer eventually be effective. While the other will last unto the rapture. So it was important for them to set Apollos down. Aquila and Priscilla. And make sure he understood what was going on. In regards to... Uh, the grace gospel, which was given exclusively to Paul. And then, of course, Paul got his Timothys and his Aquilas and his Priscilla's and his, and his Apolloses, who began to teach that gospel as well. So, anyway, that wraps up chapter number 19. So, today is Friday, and uh, we'll be back Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, and I'll put together all the studies Tuesday through Friday together. I encourage you to keep studying. Uh, God bless you guys. Good to see you as always. Um, hope you all have a great weekend. Of course, today being September the 11th, I remember where I was. I was pastoring um, First Baptist Church, San Manita, Texas. Walked into my office that morning and I saw an expression on my secretary's face. And she had just heard about it. Her daughter had called her and told her about it. And um, so, you know, today's um, a hard day in our nation's history. So let's just keep praying for God to work in and through our nation, protect our troops. and um, You know, but the answer, it's not politics. And we know that the answer to what's wrong with this world is not who gets elected on November the 3rd, uh, it's Jesus. Uh, And that's why I fight every day to stay out of, I don't always do it well, but uh, Jesus is what this world needs, uh, not another election. Um, And that's what we need to give them. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Great to be with you today, and I hope you have an awesome one. God bless you.